0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 22nd of October, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wongul and Huachuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, another once-in-a-century flood in Eastern Australia, Australia to stop recognising Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and not everyone's happy about this, and what's behind the media reports of Medicare fraud. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, still hoping to
1: be Britain's shortest-ever-serving Prime Minister.
0: And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription Whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The floods in eastern Australia have been the focus of political attention over the past week with major flooding events in Victoria, southern New South Wales and the northern parts of Tasmania. There are parts of Australia that are going through their third once-in-a-hundred-year flooding event over the past two years and some areas are getting their second major flooding event just after the previous one is receding. In total, that's eight major floods over the past two years and, as predicted, these extreme events are becoming more frequent. The previous coalition government turned a blind eye to climate change since 2013 and were slow to act when events such as floods and bushfires occurred and whatever support was given was granted in a way that favoured them politically. This is the second batch of floods in short succession since the Labor government came into office in May 2022. And we do recognise that climate change issues are not going to be resolved overnight, but what can the Labor government do that's different to the previous coalition government? Well, firstly, they can act. The
1: previous government, of course, was very slow at uh, sending help to the affected areas, even most ridiculously setting up a GoFundMe page. And when you consider the amount of resources that the federal government has at its disposal, that was really insulting. I don't know how they thought that would get them votes. And every, every decision the last government made was to get them votes. And I know that that's what all governments do. But there wasn't any, there's a greater good in this. There's a, we deserve the votes. It was just to try and win people over to their side without any substantial policy. The Labour government could start to bring in alternatives to power, as in getting away from gas and oil and coal. I know that there are sections of the Labour Party that are going to uh, totally hate that idea. But it's beyond urgent now. We have to find cleaner ways of energy. And in fact, we've found those cleaner ways of energy. We have to adopt them. The Labour Party has to cut its addiction to coal money, to oil money, to gas money. It's old technology and it can't work anymore. They need policies and incentives to get people to move away from traditional power supply to new power supply. They need that desperately. They need to do things like tax the miners, tax the industry more because you want to take away the incentive to use that. And they need to start thinking to the future much more urgently and
0: comprehensively because we are running out of time. And we've discussed this before on New Policies, David, that while longer-term solutions are engaged, governments will need to implement climate change mitigation processes and offer financial and practical support to those areas once those areas are affected. And I think the difference here is that the previous coalition government did close to nothing on longer-term climate change solutions. And whenever financial and practical support was needed, such as during the bushfire events of 2019 and the continuous floods over the past few years, that support was very slow to come in. And sometimes never came in at all. Now, it could be argued that the template for emergency financial support that was put in place by the Morrison government, and that's $400 per person and $1,000 per family. So all the Albanese government had to do was flick the switch and the support would be available. But there is a key difference in management of these emergency issues. In 2021, Scott Morrison waited until he was available to visit the flood-affected areas, and we have to remember that he was in COVID isolation at that time. Time, but he waited until he was actually available to go and visit those areas rather than delegate to the relevant minister. And the idea was to get the focus of attention on him. And in the meantime, problems started building up. And the political benefit that he was trying to gain by being the focus of attention ended up becoming political problems because all of the support that was needed was delayed. Now, It's not clear if Anthony Albanese has understood these mistakes or just the fact that he's a different sort of Prime Minister with a different managerial style. But, sure, Anthony Albanese has actually visited these flood areas. He... Delegates to the emergency services minister Murray Watt and lets him do all the talking. Albanese also had a media conference in Forbes, and that's in Central New South Wales, with National Party MP Michael McCormack and New South Wales Liberal Premier Dominic Perrottet. And this displays a high level of bipartisanship during a time of crisis. But it's something that Scott Morrison rarely used to do. He wanted most of the attention for himself, and sometimes more is less. But I think this is a better way to manage emergency situations from a practical perspective But also from a political perspective as well
1: There's a time to score political points And there's a a time to work with the other side And good leaders from all sides have understood that Perrottet in New South Wales is panicking They've got adverse ICAC findings coming out With apparently more to come Which will probably drag him into it it is highly likely that they will lose the next election and their policies have failed again and again. So Perrottet, to his credit, has decided that he better, instead of trying to deflect and to try and work against help, is looking for it. Unlike, say, Matthew Guy, who's who's leader of the opposition, admittedly, that in Victoria, Matthew Guy is still trying that divisive move and that will most likely cost them in the state election coming up there. Perrottet probably won't save his position, but he might save a few Liberal seats that could be wiped out. It, and, of course, every now and then there are things that are above party politics, and eight one-in-a-hundred-year floods would be one of those times. So all of those people should be commended for trying to
0: act like adults. We criticised the previous coalition government for their lack of action on climate change. And it wasn't just a lack of action. They actively worked against climate change mitigation and pushed fossil fuels wherever possible. And they're at it again now, even though they're in opposition. Any suggestion or idea on climate change put forward by the Labor government... These are all immediately attacked and then they get their support from the media to amplify these attacks. We did have that claim from Deputy Liberal Party Leader Susan Lay when she said that there are no electric utes anywhere in the world. Well, there are and they're being sold in Australia. A push by the Labor government to reduce methane gases was rubbished by Liberal Party Leader Peter Dutton as a tax on cows. The National Party leader, David Littleproud he lashed out at a New Zealand burp tax by claiming that if the Labor government introduced it, that would be the end of the barbecue. So this over-the-topism, it always gets the attention of the media, irrespective of how ridiculous it is. We had those claims by Barnaby Joyce of $100 lamb roasts and Wyala being wiped off the map if carbon pricing was introduced back in 2011. This is all ridiculous, but the idiocy doesn't end there. Scott Morrison also claimed that electric vehicles couldn't tow a boat. They'd see the end of the weekend. Well, electric vehicles are here and so are the electric utes. And the weekend is still here. And most of our listeners listen into new politics on the weekend. So we can definitely say that the weekend is still here and it hasn't gone away anywhere. But... The government has toned back the language on methane reduction, suggesting that it's just an inspirational international goal rather than a domestic target. So we have this situation where pretty much anything to do with climate change, ideas are presented or discussed, they're ridiculed by the coalition, and then this is radicalised by the media. Labor then pulls back and that's the end of the idea. Labor in opposition, they did pledge $17 million to support a seaweed supplement production process for stock feed, and that would reduce methane gas emissions by 90%. Why doesn't the coalition support something like this, which would be of great benefit to everyone, including farmers? Why not support it instead of making it a target of mindless political attacks? And that's the question,
1: isn't it? The National Party, of course, isn't really the party of farmers. It's the party of miners. It's the extractive industries that uh, the National Party really supports, all the while claiming it's for farmers. And a lot of farmers at least used to support the National Party despite that. I don't know if big animal feed is behind it and donations there, or if it's just another way of trying to signal to their members that, oh, Labour doesn't understand rural issues and look what they're trying to do. Without really examining the subtlety of things. So it's, again, trying to act like children when adults are required is going to backfire, hopefully
0: only electorally, but it could backfire for all of us as the climate gets worse and worse. And of course, it's up to governments to start pushing these agendas. And over the past few weeks, David, you've pointed out that Labor does need to show courage in all of these issues. And we'll find out how courageous they are when they announce their budget next week. But They also have to just accept that the coalition and the mainstream media is just going to be the mouthpiece of fossil fuel industries and they'll attack Labor on anything they do in the area of climate change. But there is a groundswell of support for climate change action in other areas. There's a number of sports people that are starting to speak out against fossil fuel sports washing and that's where... Unsavoury brands tried to boost their credentials by sponsoring national sporting teams, and that's usually fossil fuel companies, gambling and alcohol industries as well. The national netball team, the Diamonds, they refused to wear the logos of Hancock prospecting on their uniforms, and that's Gina Reinhardt's mining company. And their refusal to wear that logo also has to do with the comments that the founder of that company, Lang Hancock, said in 1984 about Indigenous people.
1: Those that have been assimilated into you know, earning good living or earning wages amongst the civilised areas, that have been accepted into society and they have accepted society and can handle society, I'd leave them well alone. The ones that are no good to themselves and can't accept things, the half caste, and this is where most of the trouble comes. I would dope the water up so that they were sterile and would breed themselves out in the future, and that would solve the problem.
0: Cricket players are also speaking out against sponsorship money from Alinta. The Fremantle Dockers are sponsored by Woodside, and Woodside was also involved in the rip-off and exploitation of gas in the Timor Sea as well. And there are some prominent members, such as Tim Winton, who were calling on the Fremantle Dockers to drop this sponsorship. So there is strong support in the community for climate change action, but we can see that the Coalition and the mainstream media, they're a bit of a backwater on these issues. They're only seeking political advantage and trying to find an opportunity to bash the Labor government whenever they can. It is interesting. Uh, Sport, of course, has
1: a range of political views. Sports players are more or less representative of Australian culture. And you have people who don't think much about politics in it at all, people who are very highly politically committed both on the, the left and the right, that the Diamonds, as a team, decided to boycott the Hancock logos, I think is remarkable. I think shows possibly a shift in Australian attitudes towards uh, these types of companies. Cricket, of course, is probably a little bit more conservative, but the fact that they're talking about it is, again, notable. I think, too, with sport, it has an influence And so, even though netball is less watched than, say, cricket, I think that it will get people thinking about what's important out there. And we may see an even further change in public opinion against the prominence of some of these companies.
0: I think it is important that sports people do take a strong stance on these sort of issues, but I think the bigger issue is, and this needs to change fairly quickly, that although there is a strong desire within the community to take strong action on climate change, and that's sort of been replicated by sports people as well, there isn't a strong political narrative on climate change. Large vested interests are still calling the shots, and I don't think the Labor government has really engaged on the strong rhetoric on this. There's no riposte to counter some of the idiocy pushed out by the coalition, Where's Labour's counter-message when you get an idiot like David Littleproud coming out to say that the weekend barbecue will be gone? It's a totally ridiculous thing to say. But what Labour needs to do is change the narrative, make its push on electric vehicles, make its push as the renewable energy superpower... Reduce methane gas emissions. And I realise that implementing these things won't result in short-term changes. These are all long-term issues, but they do have to start now, especially after the past nine years of inaction from the previous coalition government. There's no time to waste. There really isn't. I do suspect that Tanya Plibersek
1: has been working and not doing as many media appearances as perhaps we might like and that we may get a flurry of announcements of practical and hopefully good policy. We have had some. She hasn't been completely absent from the news, but I suspect that a lot of her time is taken up working, which is what we expect as Australian citizens.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Amazon Music, Spotify, YouTube and SoundCloud, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also support new politics through Patreon. And during the week the Australian Government quietly overturned the decision of the Morrison Government to recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and that decision was made in haste in the lead up to the Wentworth by-election in November 2018, and that's a seat where 16% of the electorate is Jewish. That decision didn't actually help them win the seat of Wentworth at the time. It was lost to the independent candidate, Dr. Kieran Phelps, but it was a cynical move for political advantage and followed on from the decision of U.S. President Donald Trump to not only recognise Jerusalem as the capital, but also move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv as well. Ever since Foreign Minister Senator Penny Wong confirmed that Australia would revert to recognising Tel Aviv as the capital, and bearing in mind that the United Nations doesn't recognise Jerusalem as a capital, and it's only recognised by a few countries, including the United States and Russia, we've mainly heard from the Israeli lobby groups in Australia and they think that this is a terrible idea, and we've only just started hearing from the Palestinian groups in Australia who have welcomed this announcement from the Labor government. Israeli-Palestinian politics, it's a very difficult field to navigate and it might not be as difficult as British politics at the moment, but Penny Wong's decision brings Australia back into line with the international community, so I feel that this is actually a good move. It makes sense. It
1: made no sense uh, to change the recognition of the capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem Jerusalem is a very sacred and holy city to three of the major religions in the world. Judaism, Christianity and uh, Islam. I put those in chronological order. In case anybody's thinking I'm promoting one over the other, I'm not. It's vexatious for Jerusalem to be made a centre because the three religions have three different ideas of why that city is holy to them. And in a modern government, there should be some separation of what we call church and state in Australia. So having Jerusalem as a major city, as a place for people to visit and do business in and to practice their religion in the way that they see fit is fine. But to have the governmental business done in a separate city and a city that was set up for that after 1948 makes a whole lot of sense. It's, it's the new style of capital city the old style of capital city, such as London and Paris and Rome, where everything is in the city, all the, the centre of business, the centre of culture, the centre of everything, and the centre of government is in the city, gets slowly superseded around the 18th, 19th century by places like Canberra and Washington and uh, Wellington in New Zealand and, and many others, where the centre of government is is kept slightly separate from the cultural and business centers. And it makes sense, particularly in a country like Israel, where there's a lot of strong feelings over what its makeup should be and who should live there and what its purpose is and etc. It makes perfect sense for it to have a separate center of government. Of course, it suited the evangelical Pentecostal Scott Morrison because Jerusalem looms large in. Biblical prophecy. It also suited them because in uh, the seat of Wentworth, where there's a fairly high Jewish population, and a fairly, at least vocal, very conservative Jewish population who believe that Israel should be structured differently to what it has happened, whether it ever happened. And that was an attempt to get those votes. It wasn't enough. And it may not have got them either. They may have seen right through the ploy, They may have embraced it enthusiastically. We really
0: don't know. Well, I guess we'll never actually know what the circumstances there were. But we also have to remember that the decision by Scott Morrison back in 2018 to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel was about as cynical as you can get in politics. And it was purely done to enhance Dave Sharma's chances in that Wentworth by-election. And while it might have been a popular choice within the Israeli community... It's not as though a politician makes this decision and then that's the vote on automatically sewn up. And most of the Israeli community in the seat of Wentworth, they'd probably already vote for the Liberal Party anyway. And as you mentioned before, David, it's a popular decision for evangelist Christians and Pentecostals. So perhaps Scott Morrison's decision at that time was intended to go way past the seat of Wentworth but the upshot is the decision was made at that time it didn't have the intended political results for the Liberal Party in 2018 in that by-election and it's been a leftover issue since that time and the decision of the government shouldn't actually come as a surprise. Labor did announce that while it was in opposition that they would reverse this decision if they did win the election and They did win the election. They've reversed the decision and that should be the end of it. But we know that it won't be the end of it. There have been criticisms, not just of the decision itself, but that Australia shouldn't be involved in these matters. Well, if the argument is that Penny Wong should stay out of these issues now, well, what about Scott Morrison in 2018? If there are calls for Penny Wong to stay away from Middle East politics, well, Scott Morrison should have as well back in 2018. And And it's also a case of whatever Australia says or does. They've essentially said that the Australian government is committed to a two-state solution in Israel. And they've also said that it's up to Israel and Palestine to resolve these differences. And if the United States and others accepted this as well, to stay out of Middle East politics, well, that would be good too. But it's never as easy as this.
1: No. If the solution was simple, they'd have worked it out in 1917 fully. And probably before. But it's not a simple solution. I don't know that they're going in the right way about it in terms of policy in the Middle East. I don't think they're going about it the right way now. I do say that any policy that oppresses anybody else is probably not the best policy. And again, I suspect that the United Nations have barely noticed the change except to move Australia from one list to the other. I suspect there's a little bit of trying to undermine the legitimacy of any Labour person doing anything. So Penny Wong gets slammed because, not because she's right or wrong, but because she's Labour. It gets other things out of the paper and leads the narrative in ways that most Australians don't understand and aren't bothered to understand, as is important as it may be. I think most Australians are probably focused on the environment at the moment cost of living, employment, unemployment, COVID management, etc., and less interested in the philosophical debates over an ancient Middle Eastern city being capital of a modern country or
0: not. So this was an issue that was magnified in the media for... The first few days, and the media was only interviewing people from the Jewish community, including Dave Sharma, who is no longer an MP. And finally, a few days later, the media sought feedback from the Palestinian community in Australia, and they're highly supportive of the decision by the Labor government. So... The media has a role to play in this as well. Generally, it's a defender of the state of Israel at any cost and really puts forward the perspectives from the Palestinian side. So there was a bit of a media flurry about all of this. And I can't help feeling that every decision made by Labor, you referred to this before, David, that it doesn't matter what it is. It always attracts the fury of the media, even though Labor's decision in this case is in line with the United Nations and many other countries around the world. But That takes a bit of explaining and who's got time for that. Essentially, it doesn't really matter. Israel will continue to make its own decisions about where its own capital is, even if it is detrimental to the wishes of the Palestinian people. I think it would be better for the media to focus on the appalling conditions for Palestinians living in the state of Israel, especially in the Gaza Strip, where 2 million Palestinians have been living in what's been described as the world's biggest open-air concentration camp. It's been fully blockaded by land and sea since 2007. And these are the areas that the media should be focusing upon, not some ambit claim pushed forward by Israeli lobby groups in Australia.
1: It's heartbreaking to see how this conflict has panned out. Palestine, of course, and what were to become Israeli people lived fairly peacefully for nearly 2,000 years. And then the West got involved. And the West got involved because of the proximity to oil. Uh, If there wasn't anything profitable under the ground there, I imagine they'd still be living very peacefully and happily together. You can also throw in the belief of some people that we are living in the last days and that Jesus is going to return and that it's all going to be centered around Jerusalem. Jesus hasn't yet returned. It must be getting to the point where you'd nearly think, hold on. (laughs) When do you give up waiting? I usually give people about half an hour before I think, yes, they're not coming for whatever reason. 2,000 years seems very generous, but faith is faith, and we can't really argue against it.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Amazon Music, Spotify, YouTube and SoundCloud, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also support New Politics through Patreon. Medicare has been in the spotlight this week with allegations that doctors are scamming the system to the tune of $8 billion per year. It's not clear how these figures are being calculated. The doctor whose reports are being used as the basis for these figures, Dr Margaret Foe, she's claimed that the figure was possibly $3.6 billion and she hasn't actually suggested that it's fraud and scamming but honest mistakes by doctors. But the media was quick to label this as a major fraud. I think we do have to be a bit sceptical about all of this. The overall cost of Medicare is $30 billion per year, and it's hard to accept that more than 25% of this would be through fraud. And there might be some vested interest involved here as well, with Dr. Foe, also the CEO of Sinats Medical Services, a provider of medical billing systems and training services for doctors in these billing systems, and we're not asserting that anything is untoward there. We're just suggesting that there might be a conflict of interest here. There is going to be some fraud and some rotting in any system that involves $30 billion per year. And we have to remember all of those cowboy doctors operating those liposuction procedures and charging it all on Medicare. But to suggest there's $8 billion of Medicare fraud going on, it makes me think that there might be something else going on here.
1: My view at first was to look at the claim, look at how much they're claiming and it made no sense and nobody has said and the fraud comes through this type of practice Uh, there's a form you can put in and it should cost four billion dollars a year but it costs eight billion dollars a year but if you submit it twice uh, you get the payment twice but only recorded one you know some kind of loophole like that or that there was a cartel of doctors who'd worked out some way of frauding the system but no evidence at all was given why it was that match they just vaguely said gps now the interesting thing is that gps and hello to all our gp listeners out there too i'm i'm on your side in this case uh not just your single practices but they're in medical centers they're in hospitals you have gps working for private firms and not just health firms if you go on a cruise ship there's usually a gp Well, there's always a GP. Some of the larger companies, particularly those in rather specialist areas, will have a GP on staff in case something happens and a quick medical decision needs to be made. So they didn't say what type of GPs were involved in this fraud. My view is that it's just another anti-Medicare kicking. Look at how bad this public system is. They just wrought it. It's much better in the private field. I would get our listeners to Google Aspen Medical to see what rorting went on there with testing for COVID. We had companies who were able to charge for four tests when only one was done, for example. We had companies who got tenders for things that there was no way they'd be able to fulfill those tenders, but they got them anyway, and all from the private sector. This is the type of thing that we need to stamp down on. Private sector sucking money out of the public sector for no return. It's interesting that they pick GPs. And I suspect they pick GPs because it's the largest block of doctors. If you'd said, oh, it's the gastroenterologists. And hello to all our gastroenterologists. I'm just picking you as an example. I don't think you're any more guilty than anyone else people would be able to chase that up because there's a lot less of them. You could ring a few of them and work it out very quickly. But with GPs, because they're such a broad and diverse lot, it would be very difficult for one or two or even three journalists to work out where this fraud was coming from. And again, that's not to say that fraud doesn't happen. I'm sure out there somewhere are doctors who defraud the system and we do know this because they get caught and they go on um, a current affair and they go to court and what have you
0: but without further evidence we can't accept eight billion dollars Well, that's absolutely right. This $8 billion that's been claimed in fraud, that's unsubstantiated, and no one can actually explain where this comes from, but Nine Media, which owns the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in Melbourne, and the ABC, they've been running a joint investigation into this and running exclusive stories about it, and I do get a bit worried when media players such as Nine Media and the ABC team up. I'm not sure why this arrangement exists, and to me it does seem a little bit strange, but These stories have been running all week in the media that Medicare is facing this massive fraud perpetrated by doctors and GPs and it's still not clear why this story is coming out at this stage. The expert that a lot of this material has been based on Dr. Margaret Fo, she did write up her PhD into Medicare leakage, as she calls it, and that was published in 2021, that was just last year. And in the PhD, she claims that the leakage was caused by non-compliant medical billing, and that's somewhere between five to 15% of the overall budget, and that's somewhere between $1.2 to $3.6 billion per year. But she also goes on to say that despite the absence of evidence, and these are the critical words here, despite the absence of evidence, this phenomenon is typically attributed to deliberate abuse by medical practitioners. So there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that there is any fraud. So somehow the material Dr. Foe has been referring to in her PhD, that's the main basis of these nine media ABC investigations, that somehow that's moved from anywhere between $1.2 to $3.6 billion dollars It's gone up to $8 billion per year, and even CPI increases can't account for that number, David. But a PhD where Dr. Foe herself has said that there's an absence of any evidence of deliberate abuse by Medicare by GPs and doctors, somehow that's been construed to be $8 billion of medical fraud. Now, David, I've learned from a very young age that you should never believe anything that you read in the newspapers All of this is so far-fetched, but the real interest here is how this story is being used to attack Medicare. Yeah, and they hate Medicare,
1: partly because it was a Labor thing, bought in as a Medibank by the Whitlam government, folded up by the Fraser government, and then bought back in in a more sustainable way by the the Hawke government. And the Hawke government's longevity helped cement Medicare in. And it's one of the great health services in the world despite the fact they keep chipping away at it partly they hate it because i think they can't stand the fact that poor people might get medical care partly they hate it because they see all that money being spent on things that aren't them and partly it's their friends and colleagues who have private health aren't making money when it's a public system Yet, the only sensible system is a universal healthcare system where everybody gets the same high quality treatment and for little to no cost. Yeah, And it's always defeated me. And I know the big argument in America that they kind of throw out here every now and then, but gets shot down very quickly, is that it's just socialism, as if public health is a bad thing. And they hide it around here in terms of, oh, you have the freedom to choose. Well choose what? How many specialists do most of us know? If you've got something desperately wrong with you, you're not going to do a three-day Google search and go down to the library and check Dr. X over Dr. Y. Well, Google it, mate. You you could Google it. (laughs) But if I'm in an emergency situation, I'm not going to say, oh no, I'd rather have the other doctor, please. It's really strange. And it's like all privatized systems that really should be government systems they don't actually add anything to the industry i mean if you look at something like radiation therapy where the best and brightest and newest machines just aren't affordable to private practice so they get in the later machines now if you're in a if you're getting treatment at the moment and you're in a private practice you're still getting very good treatment but you're not getting the absolute cutting edge because it's only the bigger hospitals that can afford that
0: And another narrative that's out there at the moment is the claims that doctors are not very good on business matters and they do make administrative slip ups. But even this is a little bit far-fetched as well. Most GPs work in a clinic and there's admin people that deal with all of the forms and rebates and even solo specialists have got someone doing all of their admin work for them. Now in the smaller regional towns you might get the solo GPs who do absolutely everything, the appointments, seeing the patients, handling the forms. But this is actually quite rare and I do realise that doctors are like everyone else in the community. You get the good, the bad, the straight, the crooked, you get the ones that snort cocaine or do whatever. And I'm sure that there is some fraudulent behavior and some bad seeds within the medical profession. And as I mentioned before, you'd expect that within a $30 billion per year system. And of course, governments need to make sure that fraud and wastage is minimized. But as I mentioned before, this just seems to be another attack on the Medicare system. What about all the fraud that exists within the private health system? The revenue for private health care in Australia is around $20 billion per year. And there's another piece of academic research out there. And that was produced by Catherine Flynn from Wollongong University in 2016. And she suggested that up to 7% of this revenue in private health care is extracted through fraud. So That would be around $1.4 billion per year, and that's roughly in line with the Medicare numbers that Dr. Foe suggested in her PhD, even though she suggested it was mismanagement rather than fraud in the case of Medicare. So if the administration of Medicare is going to come into question and... The Minister for Health, Mark Butler, he has said that he's going to commission a report into these allegations of Medicare fraud. Well, it can't just be an investigation into Medicare alone. The federal government provides $7 billion in rebates to support the private health care industry. So if fraud is taking place there, well, the government's got a responsibility to look in there as well.
1: The, the, the health system needs to be reformed. We need to get private profit out of public health. When you turn up to the hospital, the hospital is begging you to use your private health insurance if you have it. And that's just not right. Cake stalls and toy stalls to earn thousands of dollars a year in multi-billion dollar operations, which is again, not right. I believe we're seeing the end of neoliberalism. And one of the casualties should be this notion that private is always better. But when it comes in terms of stuff that you really shouldn't make a profit from. And I'm differentiating profit here from making a living. But a lot of private firms are basically a shift the profits off to their parent company overseas and we don't see that value. And then they don't pay tax on it. And I know that the current government has a lot to do, but this is another priority that they should be really working on. And Again, easy for me to say, I would ignore the vested interests who want to keep just carving it up for themselves without really any concern for the health of their clients.
0: And we've been giving the mainstream media a bit of a workout today, but the media whipped itself into a lather during the week, and this follows on from what we discussed last week, David, that legacy media is promoting conservative interests and independent media is promoting non-conservative interests. And we had news corporation journalists attacking doctors during the week as well, claiming that they're overpaid and overvalued. and. Not sure if this is the right tone to strike after all the hard work doctors have done during the COVID-19 pandemic and helping to get the nation vaccinated over the past two years. But David, it's always good to see a professional fight, journalists in one corner, doctors in the other. But I have to say, I don't think it's going to be a fair fight. In the recent Roy Morgan opinion poll, where they ranked professions according to their ethics and honesty, 82% of those people surveyed ranked doctors at high or very high, and Journalists only got 15%, and David, I'd say that you and I probably make up most of that 15%, but the point is that the public believes that doctors are very ethical and honest, and the public has a low opinion of the people that have been reporting on these matters. So it might be very difficult for the media to try and win the public over on this. I'm going
1: to make it 16% by next year, I swear it. But you're right. Most GPs in particular, again, I don't know why you'd think that getting away with this would work. And there's even this sort of insult to the people who work for GPs, the office administrators and the receptionists and the the other allied health professionals who do the paperwork so that the GP can do the, the work of healing. Well, you said this before, when you're looking at Poor business administration practice. You're not really attacking the GPs. You're attacking the very hard worked and mostly underpaid. And that's a whole other issue. Office staff who do this. Now, of course, mistakes are going to happen. Of course, forms are going to be misread and sent off to the wrong people. And that's just the way it is. That's human nature. And yet a journalist can say, oh, we can't trust GPs. And I'm wondering if this whole anti-science thing, can be traced back to big businesses not wanting to accept climate change as a thing. So you, you undermine all science, all debate, and you just say, oh look, these doctors were dishonest. I bet climate scientists are the same. We're in the death throes of neoliberalism, I think, and these are the, the last fevered ravings of a dying nerve center.
0: That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.